the Bain Free Radio Hour. On the podcast, engineers astonished when merely spelling FTL backwards turns a new star drive into a time machine. By the way, we have received our first message from the future, and here it is. Plus, we continue with the complete audiobook serialization of Son of the Black Sword by Larry Correa. All right now. Welcome to the Bain Free Radio Hour podcast. It's an honor to have you along. I'm Bain Senior Editor Tony Daniel. This time we have David Weber in part one of a multi-part interview talking about Uncompromising Honor, his big new addition to the Honor Harrington series. And it's a climactic book in the storyline. David talks all things honor and illuminates the book with anecdotes and such. So that's coming up. Plus, we continue with the complete audiobook serialization of Larry Correa's great high fantasy novel, Son of the Black Sword. Here's the news. Yay for contests! What would we do without contests? Well, we'd turn into couch potatoes like Ulysses' crew among the lotus eaters is what? But that's not going to happen, because the October contest is up on the Bain.com front page. Honor remembered. With uncompromising honor, David Weber revisits his most enduring creation, Honor Harrington. It's been 25 years since Honor first debuted onto the science fiction shelves in On Basilisk Station. In that time, she's gathered a loyal following. To celebrate the release of Honor's latest adventure, we'd like you to tell us your favorite scene or moment from the Honor Harrington series for a chance to win a signed copy of Uncompromising Honor. Send your entry to contest at Bain.com no later than October 20th and put October contest in the subject field and remember to include your name. All the details on this are on the website. So if honor demands, send us your favorite memory, moment, scene, uh, segment, whatever it is from the series and dump those memory fusion bottles into an email and send it to us. This is part one of an interview talking with David Weber about Uncompromising Honor. Part two will be available next time on the podcast. I want to welcome David Weber to the podcast. Hello, David, once again. Hello, Tony. Other Tony. It's great to have you. Yes, that's right. <laughs> it's the Bain way. Well, at least you're probably the David. We have about 15 Davids here now, so... Yeah, yeah. Uh, David Weber is the creator of the Honor Harrington series, among others. He's had two, he's had, I don't know, I think 28, 29 New York Times bestsellers and 8 million books in print. In fact, Uncompromising Honor has uh, cracked the top 10 as of yesterday of the New York Times bestseller list. I don't know if you heard about that, David. I'm sure you did, probably. I did. Marla told me. And the current number is. 25 Bain titles that have cracked the list, and 32 total, accounting seven from Tor in the Safe Hold series. Um, but this is only the third one to crack the top 10, though. Uh, the other two were uh, War of Honor and uh, A Rising Thunder. Well, maybe we'll uh, we'll we'll see why that is um, in a moment, uh, because this is a this is a big culminating book in the series. Not the end of the series, but it's a it's a hell of a big book in the series. Um, that book being uh, uncompromising honor, and the book is getting glowing reviews as well as in the usual places. The book is getting glowing reviews in the usual places, but. There's a more unusual recent review. I thought I'd read a little excerpt of it because I thought it was really cool by Mark Vandroff of the Center for International Maritime Security. Actually, um, on actually, their actually, actually, Mark is not uh, with the Center for International Maritime Security. He is uh, in uh, surface warship design in the U.S. Navy, and he is uh, a contributor to the Center for International Maritime Security. Uh, is that... That's not 
Uh, Benign Mark, right? No. No, 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 no. That is Mark Gudis, who is a wonderful guy, but he's a lawyer, yes. Yes, that's right. So, Mark Vandroff says, Weber's books are enjoyable as fiction and profound as works of art. In them, great power competition makes its way into the space age on a galactic scale. Battles are described in vivid, suspenseful detail. Both sides grapple to do their duty as they understand it. And it is the human touches that make this book so gripping. Weber's fans will greatly enjoy Uncompromising Honor and be left eagerly awaiting the next installment of this magnificent series. Which I thought, it, it, it's really just a, a huge, great review in general. That was my favorite little uh, pull pull out of it which we've uh, we've put on the uh, Amazon page by the way I I was very very flattered by by Mark's uh, comments um, especially given what he actually does for a living if you know what I'm saying well tell me about th- that's what I want to ask you about your work appeals to such a broad spectrum and especially brings in readers with with these impressive backgrounds I mean aside from there being um, the books being so good, what do you think the quality is about the book that um, brings in a reader like Mark, uh, Mr. Mr. Ship Designer? Yeah, well, I think that part of it is that I have a fairly deep background in diplomatic and military history. And so when I am writing about these things, I have that real-life history in the back of my head the whole time I'm working. And I think that it comes through sometimes in the way that I approach uh, strategic questions or how I approach the uh, relationship between civilian control and military command uh, in wartime. Um, I try to uh, play fair with both sides. I try to play fair with the folks in the military. Um, They are, very few of them are saints and very few of them are devils. Uh, These are people, for the most part, uh, at least the sympathetic characters, no matter which side they're on, uh, are people who have knowingly accepted military service in defense of what they believe in. Um, They are... Uh, almost always uh, a little bit divorced from the civilian society that they defend uh, because it's their job to defend it, even the people in it who don't like them, if you know what I'm saying. Um, and I try to to present uh, tactical problems as well as strategic problems that somebody who has an actual military background will look at and go, okay, this is a believable combat situation. And then let my characters deal with it. I think that's a, all of that is a big part of it. But I think, I think it is that, I guess the simplest way to put it would be that military readers can tell that I respect military service, but I don't make all the warts on it go away. If you if you follow what I'm saying there, yeah. And your characters are more or less. Um, I mean, you have some warrior types, of course, including honor, but um, they're they're also partake of the military bureaucracy that guys and girls in the real military have to deal with all the time, right? Yeah, well, absolutely. And also, you know, you get to see some of the military family members who aren't themselves in the military. Um, uh, people who who have loved ones in in harm's way, um, and how they deal with it. And you also get to see what being career military really costs in terms of other opportunities in your life, and balancing that against your sense that this is what you really need to be doing. Um, I remember one of the one of the memories that kind of colors my writing i've talked about this at conventions is a very good friend of mine colonel mack uh who told me once he said uh, the second worst moment in any combat commander's life is when the intelligence was good the planning was good 
Everybody practiced the mission. Everybody executed almost perfectly. And you still have a 19-year-old bleeding out in your arms, and you cannot pour the life back into him. And I said, my God, that's the second worst moment. He said, yep. And I said, well, what's the worst moment? He said, the worst moment is when you realize that this is what you do best in all the world. And that, and that is part of honor's character. And I think that's something that appeals to people who have been there and done that in the sense that she understands that what she does is a horrible, ugly thing. But she also understands that it's something that has to be done under the circumstances and that she does it better than most, which means that if she doesn't do it, then somebody who doesn't do it as well will have to do it and probably get more of her people killed. Yeah. There's kind of a, a, a mercy to being implacable on her part since she will sacrifice some, but uh, as many people won't die because of what she's done. Uh, that, that's, that's, yeah, that's probably the, the best way to put it. In fact, she can maybe wind up with a situation where as many people don't have to die on the other side. Okay, there's a scene in this book where she's talking to a destroyer captain who has pulled off just, you know, an amazing feat, which was largely bluff. And the captain is saying, you know, but I couldn't have stopped them. And Honor says to her, okay, look, we teach this, but maybe you've forgotten it. Killing everybody on the other side is the best way to win the battle. The best way to win the battle is inside the other side's head. When you get them to do what you want without having to kill everybody. Yeah, yeah. And, uh, of course, not to give anything away, but Honor certainly uh, faces such a situation herself. In, in uncompromising Honor. Um, yeah, so, she does, and she kind of wishes that it hadn't worked out the way that it did, because she was yeah, really, really good. Yeah. That's yeah. Right. Um, so, let's let's think about the beginning, if you, if you can go back that far. <laughs> this is a huge book, by the way, David. Once again, um, and it's it it is full of some some wonderful spaceship battles and a lot of uh, the kind of background you need for the spaceship battles to make to be as exciting as they are. But oh, we should mention that it's got a beautiful Dave Mattingly cover as well. Yes, this is this is one of my favorite covers that that David has done for us. Yeah, I like it a lot. So. Yeah, it's it's striking. I'm probably I'm probably going to turn it into a T-shirt. <laughs> Here we go. And we got a nice. Uh, we got some nice foil on there. Uh, pop out that title in your name. All right, it's a great book, and it's a great physical book. Um, so, it, can you give us an overview of where we? I, giving an overview of the series is just impossible at this point. Uh, Although you probably do it every once in a while, but uh, the, of where we are at the beginning of uncompromising honor, what's the this tactical situation, the strategic and political situation? Um, we start by uh, a fellow surveying the blasted Solarian fleet right, float um, that's that's floating uh, somewhere in like the Oort belt of uh, Manticore, right? Or, Loretta's fleet from Operation Raging Justice because the Solarian League likes, you know, fun names. Um, I thought it was an ironic name for an attack launched during time of peace without a formal declaration of war. Um, but hey, you know, what's in a name? Um, okay, basically, and and really, 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 really simplifying this way back. Uh, 25 years ago when I wrote uh, Basilisk Station. Um, the People's Republic of Haven and the Star King of Manticore were sliding into a war. The People's Republic was expansionist. Manticore was very wealthy and it had the Manticore Wormhole Junction, which is hugely important 
to galactic uh, shipping and information flow. You don't need a wormhole to get from system to system, but you can do it a whole bunch faster with save time, save money, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Okay. Um, basically, the People's Republic is like, you know, well over 100 star systems. Manticore is one star system. But Manticore is really, really rich. And you don't really find out until the uh, the novella, I Will Build My House of Steel, in House of Steel, the Honor Harrington, universe, the first of the Honor Harrington universe companions, just how critical King Roger, who dies before Basilisk Station, was in Manticore's survival, because he's the guy who started a whole bunch of top-secret research programs that, 20 years later, are providing the weapons Manticore needs to win. Uh, the war with uh, Haven lasted uh, maybe 15 years. I'd have to go back and look to be sure. Uh, there was a, a, a hiatus uh, after Manticore had militarily defeated Haven, but uh, a rotten, nasty, domestic Manticoran politician, for reasons of his own, uh, was not signing the peace treaty because it gave him political leverage back home to still be technically at war. And eventually hostilities were resumed, and the, um, the uh, Havenites had recouped much of their uh, disadvantage, uh, technological disadvantage from before. The, the second round of the war between Manticore and uh, the People's Republic is not actually against the People's Republic at all anymore. It's against the Republic of Haven because the, the uh, brutal revolutionary regime which had been ruling it has been overthrown by Thomas Theismann and uh, Eloise Pritchard has become president of the new restored Republic of Haven. And they didn't really want to go back to war with Manticore at all. Uh, but they felt that they had no choice for a lot of reasons that made perfectly good sense. And the war went well for them initially. Then Manticore introduced uh, the, the, the latest round of uh, military hardware stemming from King Roger's original research programs and regained the military edge. And in essence, the Republic of Haven was at Manticore's mercy as soon as Manticore could build up its fleet sufficiently to take the war to them again. Uh, all of this happened in uh, the book A Rising Thunder. Okay. Meanwhile, <laughs> over in one corner, there is the Mason Alignment. And the Mason Alignment is a conspiracy that has been going on for centuries um, on the planet Mesa. That's where it originated, because the Masons, who are the source of the galaxy's galactic slaves, designed humans as slaves, um, believe in the targeted, planned genetic uplift of the human species and see it divided into castes. Uh, alphas, betas, and gammas based on their capabilities and whatnot. And standing in their way is the Beowulf Code from the planet Beowulf, um, which prohibits that sort of, of, uh, of up arbitrary uplift, let's say. And Manticore and the Republic of Haven, despite being at war with one another at the moment, are two of the galaxy's primary supporters of Beowulf's uh, position and opposition to the to the um, the galactic slave trade. So the alignment decides that Manticore's new hardware is going to screw up all of their plans because they intended to use uh, Haven to take out Manticore. And they also intended to discredit Haven. They actually, the People's Republic of Haven is a pariah um, on the galactic scene because of its conquering habits. And that was part of the Mason plan to delegitimize 
the Republic of Haven, because outside the Salarian League, the Republic of Haven was the next biggest military power. And the reason that that was important is that the Mason plans visualized breaking up the Salarian League so that puppet regimes of the alignment could take over and become the successor states who would then embrace the Mason philosophy of of genetic uplift. And in order to prune the Manticorans back, they launched the Yawada strike, which is basically it's a Pearl Harbor attack on the Republic of Man on the Star Kingdom of Manticore, launched with stealth weapons that nobody sees coming, and it takes out like virtually all of Manticore's naval industry and a lot of its civilian industry. Um, and the object is to cripple uh, Manticore so that the Republic of Haven can finish them off once and for all. And simultaneously, the Solarian League is about to go to war with Manticore, also due to, to Mason manipulation in large part. But Eloise Pritchard, the president of, of Haven, screws up their playbook because instead of attacking Manticore, when one of her own intelligence operatives brings back evidence of the Mason alignment's existence and that it has plans, that it's responsible in many ways for the, this long war between Manticore and Haven, that it's responsible for the People's Republic and all the bloodshed that happened there, and that it is an enemy of both Manticore and Haven. Eloise goes to Manticore unannounced and offers Queen Elizabeth of Manticore a military alliance against the Solarian League, the hugest military power in the entire galaxy, because she understands that if they don't unite, they will be individually destroyed. And that is what creates the Grand Alliance and Operation Raging Justice and the fleet whose wreckage you see in the opening of this book was a direct Solarian attack on Manticore with the Salis not understanding how completely they were militarily outclassed. The, 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 the Solarian League Navy has like 10,000 super dreadnoughts, the majority of which are in mothballs but ready to be brought back to active service. Manticore has about 300 and... Uh, the People's Republic has about 400. So from the Solarian perspective, they hugely outnumber their opposition. This is going to be a short, sweet war from their viewpoint. Only it turns out that they're sort of like a bunch of World War I battleships going up against a modern task force with over-the-horizon cruise missiles and it does not end well for the World War I fleet, which is why we have all this wreckage to examine in the opening scenes of this book. Why are the Solarians so filled with... Uh, why don't they know, for one thing, is it just hubris that has prevented them from understanding um, that weaponry has moved on, or they just haven't fought a war? What's the... It's a combination of factors. Part of it is hubris. Uh, part of it is that, unbeknownst to them, the Mason alignment is involved in their intelligence community and is, you know, subtly shaping stuff coming back from the front. Um, mostly, it's okay. So here's Manticore. They okay. The Salarians resent Manticore. And they resent Manticore because Manticore's possession of the Manticore wormhole junction, which is the biggest wormhole junction in explored space, gives them something of a stranglehold on Solarian commerce. It is cheaper to use Manticoran shipping than it is to use Solarian shipping because the Manticoran shipping pays much lower fees whenever it uses the junction. Um, so more and more of the merchant marine of the Solarian League has come into is 
being carried on, on under the Manticoran flag. In addition, Manticore has forced the Solarian League to back down on a couple of occasions by threatening to close the junction against them. And they're sort of like, think of them as the United States being told by, by Peru that it has to change its policies, or being told by Panama that it has to change policies or it's going to shut down the Panama Canal. Yeah. But so there's so there's a lot of resentment on the part of the Solarian League in general who thinks of the, the Manticorns as those uppity neo barbarians who think they're as good as we are. Um just for starters. Okay. Now another factor that's driving this is that the Solarian League has become incredibly corrupt over the centuries. It's like 700 years old at this point. And there are fundamental weaknesses in its constitution that were deliberately installed by the founders to try and keep the central government weak. Uh, Because some of these star systems, like the star system of Beowulf, the oldest extrasolar colony, had been settled for a thousand or more years before the Solarian League was ever formed. So they had very strong, unique, ancient identities that they didn't want to see submerged in and disappear in some sort of of, uh, interstellar government that had a strong central federal government. They saw it more as a trade association than a government. Its its primary function was to, to umpire interstellar relations, not to set policy, not to... Uh, not to compel those star nations to do anything internally that they didn't already want to do. And in order to keep it weak, the Solarian government, the federal government, is forbidden to levy direct taxes on its citizens. The only way it can fund its government is through fees paid for services provided. So, they provide uh, traffic control in star systems, and they are paid a fee by that star system for providing uh, the traffic control, the customs inspectors, etc. In addition, there is something called the Office of Frontier Security. And you can think of the Office of Frontier Security in its conception as having been the Blue Helmets. It was conceived for the purpose of administering interventions in star systems beyond the Solarian frontiers, but close to them, which were leading to a lot of bloodshed internally, star systems that are in chaos, uh, star systems that are on the brink of a major war internally, etc. And the OFS was supposed to intervene temporarily in these cases which is what it did initially. But over the years, it started establishing permanent protectorates uh, around the frontiers. And in essence, you're talking debt peonage. They are providing services, and the fees are such that the star system in question will never be able to pay off all the fees. And until they pay off all the fees, Frontier Security will stay there providing the services, which will continue to cost more than they can afford to pay. In addition, the central government, the federal government, is making sweetheart deals with transstellar corporations that are allowed to exploit the protectorates in return for paying heftier fees to the central government. And what all this means is that even though the, the, the central government was set up to be starved for funds by the Constitution, it's rolling in capital coming in from the protectorate system. And the entire protectorate system is a corrupt, exploitative empire that the founders never expected to be made. When... And and people out in the in the in the frontiers who haven't been gobbled up by frontier security already would much rather belong to somebody like the Star Kingdom of Manticore, and that in fact has begun to happen prior to this book. There's an entire quadrant which has 
become part of the star empire of Manticore and added 40 or 50 star systems to Manticore in one chunk. And then Manticore and the Andromani Empire split the corrupt and failing Silesian Confederacy between them, which gave Manticore another 30 star systems eventually. So Manticore has gone in the space of maybe five years from being a single star system, a binary star system, but a single star system, to having somewhere around 60 to 100 star systems. And more and more of the protectorates are saying, ooh, ooh, can we join, can we join, which is in direct competition to frontier security. So all of this resentment of Manticore, the long-term threat to the cash cow of the protectorates, the feeling that Manticore is, is uppity and needs to be put in its place, is in play with the Solarian League in the way that it regards Manticore. Now, militarily, they've been pretty much ignoring the war between uh, Manticore and Haven. And by that, what I mean is they don't believe all of the reports coming in from the frontiers about, you know, the, you know, how heavy the casualties are and everything else. They, they don't doubt casualties are heavy because after all, you got a couple of neobarbs out there flailing away at each other with clubs. What do you expect? It's not like they were front rank Navy, like the Solarian league Navy, like battle fleet with its 10,000 super dreadnoughts. I mean, you know, these guys got less than a thousand between them. How important can it be is sort of the, the attitude uh, in in the heart of the Solarian League. You have to understand the Solarian League has never lost a war and hasn't actually fought a war in something like 400 years at this point. Mm -hmm. So they know that they are the 800-kilo gorilla uh, of the universe. Of the and the truth is that they are. The truth is that Solarian technology, base technology, is probably at least as good as Manticore's. Their problem is that they have fallen behind much further than they realize in applied weapons technology. And the window in which those new weapons have actually been on display is only about maybe five or six years. So it's not like this has been going on for a you know, decades, and they didn't realize that it was happening. They, they, their sense of superiority meant they weren't keeping a very close eye on it. Their resentment of Manticore meant that they were denigrating anything that came out of Manticore uh, about, you know, how, how cool we are and how great our admirals are. Um, and when they hear about the Yawada strike, what they see is an opportunity because Manticore is now crippled. And ha and they figured that uh, the, the Manticore fleet had to have taken heavy losses in the Iwata strike. In fact, the fleet wasn't hit at all. It was the logistics base, the shipyards, and the, the, the ammunition plants that got taken out. But they see this as an opportunity to finally finish Manticore off once and for all, and turn it into the biggest, richest protectorate in the history of the galaxy and control the wormhole junction. Um, all of this is, is wrapped up in, in one package for them with a big bow on the top, and they're pointed at it in part by folks who are part of the Mason alignment or controlled by it, which includes, for example, the... Uh, the chief of naval operations, the uniform military commander of the Solarian League Navy, is in the Mason alignment's pocket. And he's the guy who is telling the, the, the permanent senior undersecretaries who actually run the Solarian League what they can do. Now, How have the, the Masons infiltrated all these key positions? Well, a lot. Okay. Um, they've, been, they've been working on this for... 400, 500, 600 years. I'd have to go back and, you know, I mean, a long time, okay? Um, and uh, they have um, what they call alpha lines that are embedded in planetary populations other than Mesa. Um, and, 
These are people who genuinely are genetically superior to the people around them very often. Now, that doesn't necessarily mean, I mean, you know, when you talk about genetic superiority, you're talking about norms versus individuals, if you see what I'm saying. Um, and so the fact that someone is genetically superior to the the average human population around them doesn't mean that they're superior to all of the human population around them, okay? But these families have been in place uh, in some cases for centuries, um, and they have been working uh, towards the ultimate goals of what's called the Detweiler Plan. It's named for a guy named Leonard Detweiler, who would be horrified by the plan, by the way. He would never have signed off on this. Um, But they have warned themselves into the professional military families, into the families in which political service is a family tradition, into positions in the financial market. Um, They're smart, they're disciplined, and they have other folks in a position to help them along as they get there. Now, not everybody in these Alpha Line families is in on the Detweiler plan. Um, they are very careful about which members of the family they recruit. Uh, And sometimes entire generations go by when they don't really see anybody suitable to recruit because it takes a little something special to convince somebody who was born and bred in the United States and who has been, his family came over with the Mayflower and, you know, and, and he totally believes in what the United States stands for, it, it takes a little bit to walk up to him and say, you know, you were planted as a sleeper by a French conspiracy when you came over on the Mayflower. You're supposed to be helping us out to do this thing now. You've got to be pretty convincing to get somebody to agree to do that. So, you know, the current generation guys who are in on the plan will kind of groom their successors, try and find somebody that they can instill the right attitude in. But basically, the, the, the real reason they've been able to succeed is that the very notion of something like this is so absurd that nobody takes it seriously. Everybody's like, oh, yeah, you know, I know all about the Illuminati. I know all about, you know, this. I know all about that. Oh, my God, not another conspiracy theory. If anything looks like intruding into the light, which it normally doesn't anyway. Uh, so when Manticore and the, um, the and Haven as the Grand Alliance are trying to convince the Solarian League that they're being manipulated, that you know that somebody who has who wants to see both the Solarian League and the the Grand Alliance shattered is is secretly influencing them. The response is, you know, couldn't you at least think of some propaganda that might be almost believable instead of carrying on about these these incredible, impossible conspiracies? Everybody knows that both Manticore and Haven have hated Mesa for hundreds of years because of the slave trade. You know, what's really going on here is Manticore has turned imperialist. That's why it's grabbing up all these other star systems out here. Haven has decided we'd rather work with Manticore than Haven. Let's rip off all the territory we can from the Solarian League. And you're coming up with this stupid conspiracy theory to try and justify what you're doing. Give us a break is basically the Solarian attitude. And it's hard to blame them, given what they know at the start of this. But it's the, it's the ancient... It, it's believable, first of all, because there's prolonged now and, and such a conspiracy and, and the ability to create sleepers over generations in a, such a stable, a steady, slowly becoming decadent uh, sort of empire... That's true, but don't forget the prolong's only been around for about 80 years at this point. It's a relatively new uh, introduction. So, and that's and that you know, it's like even people say, well, maybe we maybe they could do it with prolong. You know, they're saying you're telling us that they started doing this uh, like three, four hundred years before prolong was invented. So that's like that's like 
you know, that if it's 300 years, man, you're talking about like 15 generations of this plan going on without anybody ever telling about it. Now, one of the reasons that nobody tells about it is once you join the Manticoran alignment, you get uh, injected with the nanotech, which causes you to die of natural causes if you start trying to reveal anything about the alignment's existence to anyone else. That's the downside of being part of the Mason alignment. If you're captured and if you're going to be interrogated, you die. If you try to betray the Mason alignment, you die. Um, And they don't necessarily tell everybody about that until after they've been injected in some cases, if you see what I'm saying. But the Mm -hmm. causes of death seem to be completely natural. So, you know, okay, so somebody who it turned out was a bad risk, we recruited him when he was 35. By the time he was 37, he was having second thoughts. And then he dies at 38 of a brain aneurysm nobody saw coming. Nobody's going to link that to a a secret conspiracy out to overthrow the greatest uh, political unit the human race has ever known in uh, a Solarian League that has like 1,800 member systems. You see what I'm saying? We could, of course, go on and on uh, talking about the, the greater uh, the greater situation. Um, can, let's hone in on Honor for a bit and maybe talk about um, her character at the beginning, her personal situation. She's in a three-way marriage, and she's pretty happy at the beginning of the book. Well, okay, Honor in in... Basilisk Station, the first book in the series, I like to describe Honor as a tactically brilliant, politically naive, totally dedicated officer. Uh, She's going to do her duty, whatever it costs, damn the political consequences. I don't like politics. Every time you get involved with politics, things get murky. Screw politics is basically her attitude. By the time of Uncompromising Honor, which is like, 20 years later uh, in, 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 on her personal timeline. She is uh, a great noble woman in two different star systems. She has had to be up to her neck in politics, and she has emerged as a, uh, uh, one of the leading strategists, both militarily and politically, for the Grand Alliance. She's a personal friend of Queen Elizabeth. She's a personal friend of Elizabeth Pritchard. She's a personal friend of Thomas Deisman. She's a personal friend of Benjamin Mayhew, the protector of Grayson, which was Manticore's most important ally uh, in the fighting between Manticore and Haven. So she has grown up in that sense over the course. She is now prepared she she addresses her empress by her first name and is prepared to tell her, you're wrong, shut up and listen to me. And Elizabeth does it. Okay, that's how honor has grown in a professional and a, 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 a personal sense there. Now, she is in a three-way marriage uh, with uh, Hamish and Emily. Um, Hamish and Emily ha- were, have been married for, gosh, 60, 70 years at this point, they both have prolong, although they have first-generation prolong. Honor has third-generation. So even though there's only about probably 40 years between her and Hamish, physically, he looks like he's probably in his late 40s pre-prolong, and she looks like she's in her very early 30s, all right? Emily was crippled um, before, actually, I think about the time Honor was born, maybe even before that. Emily was crippled in an air car accident, and she is kept alive only by her life support chair, which I don't know if it's ever actually stated in the books, has direct neural shunts so that she can control it. Uh, Her spine was shattered very high up, uh, among other things, which means that she has only limited use of one arm um, and otherwise is totally dependent on her on her life support chair. And Hamish Alexander still loves her dearly. 
uh, from the day that he first married her. Then he falls in love with honor. But being a man of honor, he's determined not to say anything about it until he thinks that honor is dead. He thinks she was executed by the peeps, by the political, by the People's Republic. And so now that she's safely dead, he can admit how he feels about her to himself, which he has persistently refused to do up to that point because it would be disloyal to Emily. But he can now look at this and say, yes, I did, and etc. Then Honor comes back from the dead. She's escaped. She's not really dead after all. And he can't unthink what he's already thought, if you see what I'm saying. But he's still determined, I will never tell her a word about it. I won't make her uncomfortable that way. And doesn't realize that Honor, because of her relationship with Nimitz, her tree cat, has developed an empathic sense which lets her feel the emotions of those around her. And finally, to make things worse, she has realized how she feels about him. So here are these two desperately unhappy people who are determined they're never going to do anything to hurt Emily. Never, ever, 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 ever. Okay? And and then... They get involved in a political dogfight back home in Manticore, and political opponents invent an affair between them that never happened, which is, of course, particularly painful to the two of them, since they would love to have an affair, but they're not going to do it. Um, and it's, it's, a, it's really hurting their, their, uh, their support for the government because of the way it's being used against them. So Emily, who is a brilliant political analyst, invites Honor to come visit her at Whitehaven. The Hamish is the Earl of Whitehaven. Whitehaven is his estate. And she goes, and, and Emily says, look, you know, I know that he hasn't betrayed me, but I also know that he really does love you. He would never say a word about it to me. But the fact that he has not asked me to intervene in this indicates that he thinks that you... He's had a couple of affairs over the years. I've known about it, but they were all with professional courtesans, you know, which is kind of not frowned upon in Manticorn society, you know. But I've always known that he really loved me. He would never even think of betraying me in that sense. And the reason he's not talking to me about this is because the way he feels about you, he's afraid that he might. And that tells me that he does not have the strength this time can't be strong all the time. He doesn't have the strength this time to, to, to break it off, bring it into the open and say, it's not going to happen. So you need to, and honor says, yes, I understand that. I understand that perfectly. And I can't. And Emily realizes that these two are still never going to say a word to each other about it. But she decides that what happens is she needs to become honors friend openly go back into politics and be the, you know, I know honor, I know my husband, absolutely nothing is going wrong cover. But she also realizes that Hamish and honor are desperately unhappy, trying to keep from hurting her. And so she eventually says to them, okay, look, maybe it hasn't occurred to you that sometimes the person you're trying to protect doesn't need to be protected. So you guys do whatever you want. I'm going to bed. And in effect, she has said, quit killing yourselves trying not to hurt me. That was part one of an interview with David Weber talking about uncompromising honor. Part two will be available next time on the podcast. Now we continue with the complete audiobook serialization of Son of the Black Sword by Larry Correa, book one in the saga of the Forgotten Warrior. After the War of the Gods, the demons were cast out and fell to the world. Mankind was nearly eradicated by the seemingly unstoppable beasts. Until the gods sent the great hero Ram Rowan to save them, he united the tribes, gave them magic, 
and drove the demons into the sea. But as centuries passed, the descendants of the great hero grew in number and power. They became tyrannical and cruel, and their religion nothing but an excuse for greed. The people rose up, and the surviving royalty and their priests were made castless, condemned to live as untouchables. The age of law had begun. Ashok Vidal has been chosen by a powerful ancient weapon to be its bearer. He is a protector, a member of an ancient military order of roving law enforcers. No one is more merciless in rooting out those who secretly practice the old ways as Ashok. But Ashok isn't who he thinks he is. And when he finds himself on the wrong side of the law, the consequences lead to rebellion, war, and perhaps transformation. Now here is the latest entry in Larry Correa's Son of the Black Sword. Chapter 9 Protector of the Law, Ashok Vidal, Twenty Years Senior Rode through the lands of the great house that shared his name, dwelling on what he'd lost, what had been taken, and the legal questions pertaining to the proper way to end his life. A light rain fell. More of a mist, really. Ashok didn't mind the rain. Water that came out of the sky was water's purest form. It hadn't had a chance to become corrupted yet. It wasn't until it collected that it turned malicious. The night was dark and chill. It gave him an excuse to keep his hood up, and his distinctive insignia covered. It was best if word of his arrival didn't spread. He was still riding the same poor, tired horse that had taken him into the capital, and from there all the way across the northeastern portion of the continent to Vidal. He'd only worn out one horse this time. There was no reason to try hard to reach this particular destination. Time was no longer of the essence, and the long weeks had given him time to think. All that time hadn't dulled his anger in the slightest. Damn Indaran, damn Ratul, damn them both along with their lies. Mindaran had put a curse on his head. Ashok had been offered a choice to be a liar like them, but that was nothing but an illusion. The master must have known there was no way Ashok could continue living once given this knowledge. Ratul had broken the law by allowing him to live to begin with. And ever since then, the order had perpetrated fraud in exchange for power. For the first time in his life, Ashok was angry that the religious fanatics were deluded and there was no eternal soul and no eternal punishment, because they were dead and that wasn't enough. They still needed to suffer for the mockery they'd made of the law. The law was everything. Protectors routinely sacrificed their lives so that the houses could have stability. Though he could understand the strategic reasons for why the masters had kept up the lie, he could never forgive them. And thus, he would never forgive himself. Ignorance of the law was no defense for violating it. A cluster of lanterns told him there was a checkpoint ahead. Anyone crossing house borders was required to stop and present their traveling papers. A few wagons were waiting to have their cargoes inspected and papers stamped. This was a busy trade road, so the checkpoint was practically a fort. But with the rain, there wasn't much of a line tonight. Protectors were of the highest caste, so all he needed to do was display his token of office and ride through. But since he was trying not to draw attention to himself, Ashok got into line. As usual, his horse was glad for the chance to stop for a bit. Almost there, horse, Ashok told the animal as he dismounted. When you spent months on the road with the same beast, you had to call it something, and he had never been one for titles, so horse would do. Horse didn't care. It just stuck its face into a trough of collected rainwater and drank. The wagon ahead of him was nothing but a cage on wheels, filled with a cargo of untouchables. It was hard to tell how many, because they were packed together. 
The cage didn't have much of a roof, more of a canvas sunshade, really. So the castless had clumped together to try to stay warm in the rain, until they got to wherever their betters thought they belonged. Their clothing was nothing but rags. The adults wouldn't make eye contact, but the children were staring at him, hungry and miserable. They looked tired, wet, abused, and completely used to it. The castless knew their place. A merchant of the worker caste was standing next to his wagon, awaiting his inspection. He had an umbrella, a respectable coat, and shoes that probably kept his feet dry. He was clean, groomed, and even a bit fat. He was even allowed a sword for protection. Ashok had never paid much attention to the workers' ranks, as he was above them all, so their relative differences were meaningless. But from the fine attire, this one probably fell somewhere in the middle, above the laborers and farmers, but below a skilled craftsman or a banker. Another worker was driving the wagon. He was below the merchant, but far, far above the castless. The workers knew their place. Warriors of House Vidal were manning the checkpoint. They were fit, strong, and proud. They wore armor, not so different in design from Ashok's own, but not nearly as expensive or well-constructed. Their weapons were cared for, and unlike the merchant sword, they didn't require a permit to possess one. The soldiers seemed bored. This bureaucratic necessity was beneath them, but their duty required them to be here, biding their time until the next fight, when their house would spend their lives as readily as the workers spent money. The warriors knew their place. Through the door of the checkpoint, he could see that a low-ranking arbiter was sitting on a padded stool behind a large table. A brazier next to him provided warmth and enough light to make sure the traveling papers weren't forgeries. He collected the tariffs, stamped the papers, and wrote in his ledger. The bureaucracy was required to lead and organize, and it was what made sure the rest of the castes worked as designed. Only the lowest of the governing caste could be assigned to such a duty, especially during the slow hours of the night. But even then, this man could command all of the others and they would obey without question. The first caste knew their place. All men had their place within the law. Except for him. What am I? Ashok was an anomaly and that made him an abomination as much as any creature of witchcraft or demon that slithered from the sea. The arbiter declared the merchant's papers to be in order. The warriors opened the gate, and the castless rolled on to their destiny. When it was Ashok's turn to present himself to the arbiter, he simply opened his cloak and displayed his insignia. The arbiter immediately began babbling about how the allegations of bribery against him were nothing more than slander and to please have mercy. Since it was against the law for a protector to investigate his own house, this man's possible crimes were not Ashok's problem. But a few stern words assured him that this particular arbiter would make no mention of his passing through. He was able to return to his journey, with great House Fadal being unaware that the bearer of its mighty ancestor blade had returned. Ashok knew he needed to be destroyed for there was no place for a man without a place. But that was where the legal conundrum arose. There were certain obligations for a bearer. The blade's continued use was far more important than the fate of a single bearer. His existence was a crime, but so would be his execution. A dishonorable death might cause the incredibly valuable sword to shatter. Suicide was a coward's death and would offend Angruvadal. Much thought had gone into his problem and what solution would best satisfy these competing requirements during the long journey. But this would have to be a question for the judges. He didn't care if he lived or died as long as justice was served. Regardless of his fate, there was one last thing to be done before giving up his office and submitting himself to judgment. The ones who created this fraud had 
to die. Justice demanded it. That was another entry in the complete audiobook serialization of Son of the Black Sword by Larry Correa. And that's it for the podcast, thanks to Audible.com and to podcast theme composer Ruth Judkowitz. And the resounding bay of the hounds of exuberance as they charge out of booksellers everywhere, carrying copies of uncompromising honor to travelers stranded in the Alps and those in those long lines at airport security checks everywhere. Plus, thanks and praise for David Weber, author of Uncompromising Honor. Please join us next time here at the hammering heart of science fiction and fantasy, and keep reaching for the stars. 